difficult uh, do you suppose it would be to teach junior high in the public school today? Eyewitness testimony depicts students as often rude and unruly, even at times challenging the teacher and disrupting the class. Bringing guns to school and teenage pregnancy are the major issues in high schools today, but the major complaint by administrative officials in the 50s was chewing gum and running in the halls. I, I do have a, I'm going to confess to you, in junior high in the 60s, I was sent to the VP office. Now, the VP, the vice principal, he's the guy that handled corporal punishment. And uh, you may be wondering, well, pastor, what, why would he send you to see the executioner? It was because my friend and I were talking during his failed science experiment. He had strung us this string across the front of the room, and he had attached a CO2 cartridge, and he was going to show us about pressure and propulsion and all that. So he's there trying to knock a hole in the one end of the CO2 cartridge, and I suppose it was meant to fly across the room. Hopefully it stayed on the line and didn't knock somebody out, but he couldn't get it going, <clears throat> and he lost my attention. And so my friend and I started talking. He must have thought we were laughing at him or giving him, but he, he stopped, picked out a couple of pink slips, and we were off. And we received uh, a SWAT and had to write a letter of apology. Um, and then it was done. Then I could move on. Price paid, nothing else hanging over my head. Far from being traumatized by it, it simply caused me to pay better attention going, going forward. Of course, that which is going on in our schools today is just a reflection of what's going on in society, right? The increased violence and immorality. How could we have sunk so low in, in just a couple of generations? I think it must have to do with the lowering of moral standards by rejecting our loving creator and his commandments, his safeguards. We've pushed back against it and say, I'm a law unto myself. He has given us these commandments for our protection and well-being and to make us great even. You know, being great, desiring to be great, that's a God-given desire. And Jesus goes on to tell his disciples how to be great. He says, the greatest you know, they were all arguing. You know, you got to see the chosen if you're not watching. Have you watched that thing? They were so human. And, and they're all arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. And says, you want to be great? The greatest in the kingdom of God, of God is the servant of all. He didn't tell them, stop wanting to be great. He said he showed them the way to be great. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, this might seem like a, a kind of a strange statement coming from the mouth of someone who so often criticized the legalists, the scribes and the Pharisees. 
for their emphasis on keeping the law. But here Jesus proclaims he did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And to understand his meaning, we have to define the term law and or the prophets. In general, the law referred to the first five books of the Bible. We call it the Pentateuch. These are the books that, that, that were collected and written by Moses. The prophets, pretty self-explanatory, the ones that were written by the prophets. Together, they typically refer to the whole Old Testament. In what way did Jesus fill, fulfill the Old Testament? First of all, prophetically, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies. In Hebrews 10, 7, Jesus said, in the roll of the book, you know, their books were in scrolls that were rolled up back, and in the roll of the book, it is written of me. You know, we have a children's Bible we promote called the Jesus Storybook Bible. It's great, but its, it's subtitle is, uh, every page whispers his name, his name, Jesus' name. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus chides uh, Cleopas and the other disciples for not believing the woman's report that the Christ had risen from the dead. And he says this in Luke 24, Oh, foolish men and slow to heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory. And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And I would have loved to have heard that Bible study. They were enamored by it. And when, he, when they got to Emmaus and he pretended he was going to go keep going, They begged him to come and, and stay with them for a meal. But not, not only did Jesus fulfill the Old Testament promise of a Savior, of a Messiah, he fulfilled the moral requirement of the law embodied in the Ten Commandments by keeping them perfectly. Things like, you shall have no other God before me. You shall not make or worship idols. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness. You shall not covet. That's just to refresh your memory of what the ten actually are. You know, they used to be up in our public schools, in our courts. Though he challenges oftentimes the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law to the letter. Even confronting the hostile crowd in John 8, 46, with the bold declaration, which of you can truthfully accuse me of one single sin? Can anybody else say that? Certainly no married couple could, person could ever say that. Because he was without sin, he could fulfill the law in one more way. The law sentences the soul that sins to death. Ezekiel 18.4. That's what the law requires, and that's 
what Jesus fulfilled on our behalf when he bore in his body our sins upon the cross as our substitute. It's 1 Peter 2, 24. 1 Peter 3, 18 goes on to say that he died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to the Father He did not come, again, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, and he did it in every way. But now, maybe you're thinking, since he has fulfilled it, has the law become obsolete? This is a Pauline question. Has the, has the law been abandoned by God and no longer has any meaning? Jesus goes on, verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, that's a grammatical marking, shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Evidently, it's not obsolete. Here we learn that not just the words, but the very letters are inspired by God. And as long as there is a heaven and earth, this holy book will continue to guide and inspire faith. 2 Timothy 3.16 reminds us that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the child of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I believe that with all my heart, and that's basically the hallmark of the Calvary Chapel movement. It began with the Jesus Revolution. And there's a scene in there where, where these young people in the church, they're all holding up their Bible. They carried it with them to church. They often carried it everywhere else with them. And at church, Chuck Smith just opened it up and said, where did we leave off? And he just goes verse by verse, precept upon precept, line upon line, feeding them the whole counsel of God. And they grew strong and they turned the world upside down, really in their generation. That's the kind of faith that we have in this declaration that God's word is eternal and it will not return without accomplishing that for which he sent it. And that brings us to the next one. No one can thwart the will of God as revealed in Scripture. Bible commentary Adam Clark writes, Though all the earth and hell should join together to hinder the accomplishment of the great designs of the Most High, yet it shall all be in vain. Even the sense of a single letter shall not be lost. The words of God which point to his designs are as unchangeable as his nature itself. Verse 19, whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches these, he should be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So evidently, in heaven, some are known as maybe uh, less than others. That should get our attention. He is referring here to believers, right? Those in the kingdom of heaven. The Christians, the Christian who rejects 
any part of God's word. And, you know, Jefferson was great at, he, he loved his Bible, but he cut out a lot of passages, threw them away. Many churches today throw, out, throw away the concept of hell. Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. There's other things that we can't just pick and choose. He says, anybody that does that and teaches others to lower God's standard shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And the Christian, on the other hand, who recognizes that God's moral standard is still in effect, the believer who seeks to live by his precepts and encourages others to do likewise will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That should matter to us. The Ten Commandments remain the highest standard for intelligent life on the planet. God never has and never will rescind them, for they are his formula for happy, healthy living. On Mount Sinai, where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the two tablets, he, God showed us how we are to revere the Lord and respect our fellow man by using mainly negatives. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. But in the New Testament, Jesus transposes the ten negatives into two positives. In Mark 12, you shall love your Lord, the Lord your God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, there is no uh, commandment, I should say, that is greater than these. If, if 10 was too much for us to remember, he's dumbed it down. I can remember two things. Thank you, Jesus. Love God, love people. That's not too hard, is it? Because if we truly love God and others, we don't need the Ten Commandments. Because we will naturally choose for their highest good. And how will doing the right thing by God and others affect us? We'll be continually comforted with the glow of God's presence just to sustain us. He'll be the glory and lifter of our head every day. We'll know the joy and freedom of a clean conscience. See, I think a lot of People's problems today, and a lot of the mental health issues that we have, is because of sin and a guilty conscience. And finally, we'll win the love and respect of our neighbors. Exhibit A. Anybody heard of this guy? They made a movie about him called Chariots of Fire. That ring a bell? How many movies they made about you or me? This guy was gifted with speed, just natural, you know, rocket. And he trained for years, qualified for the 1924 Olympics, trained for years, and then with his teammates from the United Kingdom and from Scotland there, he went to Paris to perform before Hitler. 
He was favored to win the 1,000-meter race, but on the way, he found out that they scheduled that on a Sunday. And he felt that would dishonor God. So he pulled out. (laughs) Years of training. This was his only opportunity. He wouldn't be back four years later. He had other plans. For all the glory that man could give, he said, I'm pulling out of that race. He went on. They put him in the 400-meter race for which he was not favored, and he took the gold. He went on to China as a missionary to spend his life on the mission field, sharing the love of God with the people from that great land. War broke out. Japan occupied especially the eastern part and of the country there in China and, and threw Eric in a concentration camp. But he practiced these Two laws of loving God and loving people. And he, was, he just lifted the morale, the whole morale of the, of the camp. Organized games. Chapel services. And when the latrine became unusable, let me, let me just... In Asia, typically, they don't use what we call the porcelain throne. You don't sit on anything when you're doing business. Um, It's just kind of this porcelain elongated um, depression, and you just squat over it. And, And, you know, they would, then you hit the flush, and it flushes it down. Well, the Japanese were not... They didn't provide any maintenance on this. And when they broke down and weren't flushing, the excrement just piled up. Yeah, ooh. No one would do anything about it until Eric went in there barehanded with a bucket and cleaned the whole thing up. How, how far are you willing to go to show your love for others? <laughs> yeah. I'd be saying, Eric, let, where's the gloves, man? Where's my COVID mask? Come on, let's... Yikes. He lifted the spirit of the whole camp through his selfless love for others. If there's anything you remember about this message, it'll be that example. I hope hope to God you remember something else. But, But it is a demonstration of what it is to live out these two commandments, which is a distillation of the Ten Commandments. He was a light. His selfless love for others, he became a bright light and highly regarded in heaven and earth. Again, I said, I don't think anybody here has had a movie made about him. I mean, he, uh, there's been a lot of uh, just an appreciation for his life poured out on this planet and, of course, in heaven, just as Jesus said. He'd be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Where the keeping of the law falls short, however, is as a stairway to heaven. 
We can try to earn God's favor, as all other man-made religions do. We can climb the tower of our own good works, but we'll find we can't even break through the earth's atmosphere because God's standard is nothing short of perfection. The soul who sins is going to die. And unless you're perfect, you are a sinner and you have sinned. And your sentence is death. It's a death sentence. All of us have missed the mark. All of us fall fall short of the glory of God, of his perfection. Romans 3.23. I love the way Spurgeon so eloquently explains the purpose of the law. The law is the needle. And you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make way for it. Imagine that. Visualize that. If men do not understand the law, they will not feel that they are sinners. And if they are not consciously sinners, they will never value the sin offering. We see that today, don't we? I don't need God. You know? There is no God. I just came through natural processes, and it's everyone for themselves. It's a dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest. That makes sense to me, and I appreciate the, light, uh, the fact that I'm not accountable to anyone if I buy into that dogma, that ideology. Until they feel the needle of the law, they will not value the sin offering. There is no healing a man till the law has wounded him, no making him alive till the law has slain him. Galatians 3.24 refers to the law as a tutor to lead us to Christ. In that the law was used by God to reveal our inability to stand before him anywhere but in the shadow of the cross. That's why God gave Moses the Ten Commandments to bring the nation of Israel to an end of themselves and to realize that they needed an offering greater than what they could provide on their best day. And this is the final point Jesus makes in our passage. Verse 20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. We, we can't even imagine how, how this would have just blown the disciples' minds. These scribes and these Pharisees, the scribes was, were lawyers who took the great principles expressed in the Ten Commandments and extrapolated them into thousands of specific laws. For instance... In interpreting what it meant to keep the Sabbath day holy, that's all that God said. They interpreted that to mean that carrying a burden was work and defiled the Sabbath. Even today, Orthodox Jews get bogged down in the minutiae of Sabbath rules. In early 1992, Tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath violated Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. 
In the half hour it took the rabbi to decide, yes, that is a violation of the law. The fire spread to two other apartments and they all burned to the ground. You know, those of us going to uh, Israel this spring will we'll notice that uh, Friday nights, uh, the Shabbat elevator is, is operating. That's for Orthodox Jews. You don't have to break a circuit. You don't, you don't have to do that work. It will open automatically. When it's, at, when, you're, when it's at your floor, it'll open automatically. You'll get in, and you don't touch anything. It just automatically goes to every floor in the hotel. Whether it was called or not, it just goes and it opens. You've got to have some time to be an Orthodox Jew on Friday night and Saturday. While the scribes were steeped in legal minutiae, the Pharisees, meaning separated ones, made it their full-time job not to transgress a single point of scribal law. If they ate an orange, a tenth of the seeds, that's what the word tithe means. They would, take a, they would tithe the seeds in that orange. If they accidentally inhaled a gnat, they would cough it up <coughs> like Gollum until they got it out because it wasn't kosher meat. I'm not making this up. Now think, how could the disciples ever hope to compete with these guys? They were the holy rollers in Israel, and yet Jesus tells them in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisee, you're not going to heaven. What? Oh, man, what a sobering Declaration. In Romans 3.21, Paul makes this inspired declaration. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Remember, every page whispers his name. Jesus Storybook Bible. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who, what, do the heavy lifting? All who trust, all who believe. The righteousness that surpasses the scribes and Pharisees is the righteousness of God. That is the righteousness that God provides and gifts to us. And that's the only kind he accepts. The person who truly recognizes their own spiritual poverty and freely receives the priceless gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus, our substitute, that person will exceed the efforts of any modern-day scribe or Pharisee because love is more powerful. It's a more powerful motivator than law. You don't write that down. Love is a more powerful motivator than law. The legalist stops at the outer edge of law. The law says this. As soon as, as, soon as they've done the minimum required, they are done. But love knows no law and never stops preferring the other person. Barclay puts it this way. If we love someone with all our hearts, we are bound to feel that if we gave them a lifetime service and adoration, if we offered them the sun and the moon and the stars, 
we would still not have offered enough. For love, the whole realm of nature is an offering far too small. Those words ring a bell from Isaac Watts' famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. If you truly love someone with all your heart, the whole realm of nature would be an offering and a gift far too small. Right? Have you ever loved someone with all your heart? Let us revel in the love of God, the gift of God, his righteousness for our sin. That's the great exchange. His rightness for our wrongness. You won't find a better exchange in all the world. Only let us show our gratitude and prove our love by keeping and teaching his commandments. This reverence for God and this respect for man. By raising the bar as high as unselfish love, that's agape love, as making that, by making that our, our goal, we shall, by God's grace, be the salt and light of the earth like we talked about last week. And we shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this thing we call the gospel, it really, I know the word means good news, but that, it just seems to fall so short. This is great news. This is, this is incredible, mind-blowing news. And I wish everyone under the yoke of a works righteousness religion, that is all the man-made religions, Everyone under that oppressive system would be liberated by the gospel. Whereby you come and give to them your righteousness. Because you've done all the heavy lifting. I'm not striving and, and grappling to try to earn your favor like all the other man-made religions. I live by love, out of a gratitude for what you've already done. I don't have to worry about, have I done enough? The cults, the false religions, they all worry about that. There is no security in those systems. But for us who have a Savior, ah, it's a game changer. We don't strive just like an apple tree doesn't strive to produce fruit. We, we just accept what you have done for us and out of gratitude and, and by means of just absorbing your nutrients, your word, Lord, we have a blessed life, a fruitful life, a life that honors you and really a life that can be like a, ro a, a signpost to those around us. If you're here or, or in the room or you're hearing my voice today and you want to open your heart, maybe you've never done this before, and you want to invite Jesus in 
to be your great God and Savior. I want to pray with you. I also want to pray with my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a great opportunity to renew your commitment to Jesus. The one who fulfilled all the requirements on our behalf. He died so that we could live. But you know that you've been living outside of those two great commandments to love God with everything that is in you and to love your neighbor as yourself. But you want to recommit to that most noble calling. I want to pray with you as well. Let's just, you can pray in the quiet of your heart. And you can repeat after me in, in the quiet of your heart. Just, just say, God, you are a wonder to behold. I know, if I'm honest, I do not deserve the least of your mercies. Not the very least of your mercies. And yet, you have freely poured out and lavished upon me all your riches, all the riches of heaven. Come and fill me, Lord. I put my trust in you. And for my brothers and sisters, Lord, we, we just ask that you would ignite a flame in our hearts, maybe kind of like you did at the chapel service at Ashbury University, where people just were so enamored with you, they didn't want to lose that moment. And that moment became stretched out into other moments, other nights and days. Just light in us, just a sense of deep and profound appreciation for what you have done. And may it manifest itself in love. We love because you first loved us. That's a solid truth. So help us to, to draw from your precious word that sense of your love for us that we would then just it would flow through us back to you and to others. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.